0: to see everybody on the first day of sunshine in a while man didn't recognize it when it popped out like that this morning love it when it's been dreary and everything but it's sunday morning and the sun finally comes out man it's just it's neat before i get in the message today i want to uh Let you know about something. Last week, we officially kicked off our campaign of stepping into what we feel like God is telling us to do to get serious and and focused on paying off the debt of this church. Because to do that, it's going to free us up to be able to do a lot of things that He is calling us to do as a church. If you walk into the foyers or or elsewhere in the church, you may have noticed the big signs that we have up that's kind of measuring the, the progress. And, I mean, we started this last week, and we're already knocked about 200,000 off of it. So, I mean, things are going good. Our goal is to have the building paid off within three years that 's just a goal we made, um, hopefully it'll get paid off before that i 've got this feeling that it probably will be The campaign in order to do that we 're only planning on doing for no more than three months because we 're not going to just keep putting this out in front of you for three years. So what those charts are going to represent out there is um, the the amount of pledges that we have received, and we get uh, enough pledges It says if everybody sticks to their pledges it 's going to get the building paid off within well, that. Red will be at the top of that thermometer. When the red gets all the way to the top, it doesn't mean, yee-haw, the building has now been paid off. It means that we have received our goal for the amount of pledges that it will take to do that. And so that's what we're doing there. If you notice, there's something new in the P-Racks in front of you, including one of the, the pledge cards. And if you'd like to be involved in that, you can fill that out. I know the offering plate has already gone, but if you ever have anything that, that you miss getting in the plate, if you go out in this hall right here by offices, there's a box out there that's got a slit in it. and You can always slip something in there. Hopefully you got the letter from me this week along in the packet about this, explaining the vision and purpose behind this. If you didn't, you can call the office and we'll send you one. So anyway, just wanted you all to be aware of what's going on and the things that you're going to be seeing in the coming months and encourage everybody to get involved because it is going to be good. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. I was reading through the book of Nehemiah recently, and I came across something that I'd never really thought of before. Now, Nehemiah is a great story. For those of you who may not be familiar with it, it's a story about a man who lived during the exile of Israel. After the Babylonians had come and conquered them and the people were scattered all over the place. There was a a small remnant that survived and was still living around Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a Hebrew who was serving in the Persian court of King Artaxerxes. One day he encountered some of his Hebrew countrymen and asked him how things fared in Jerusalem. They gave him the the very bad news that the temple had all but been completely destroyed and the people were in great despair. This saddens Nehemiah and the king notices his melancholy demeanor and asks him what's wrong. Nehemiah tells him and the king asks him what he can do. Well, Nehemiah knew he was taking a big risk, but he asked the king for permission to go to Jerusalem to gather the people to try to rebuild the temple. And to his amazement, the king actually grants his request, and so he goes. The first third of the book is all about Nehemiah rallying and encouraging the people and their efforts at rebuilding the temple, even in the midst of a lot of opposition that was coming against them and trying to stop them, but they eventually did it. And after they completed their task, the next part of the book is all about how they gathered together in the temple and began reading the law of Moses, which hadn't been read in generations. And as they're reading it, they're discovering some things that they had forgotten about and gotten away from, some ordinances that that they didn't even know about that they began um, implementing again. A whole generation or more forgot about God's law and his ordinances, and and so they started um, bringing them back. Of course, the whole story here is a picture of the gospel. It all points to Jesus who came to restore what sin destroyed. He restored our relationship with God the way Nehemiah and the people restored the temple. He gave us back many of the things that, that, that were lost in the Garden of Eden as a result of sin. The way them reading the law brought back a lot of things that, that had been lost in their culture. The text we're going to look at today is about one of those ordinances that they discovered. Um, but they began practicing again called the Feast of Booths. And it's in Nehemiah chapter 8 beginning in verse 13. So let's all stand together as we read this today. Nehemiah eight thirteen says, Then on the second day the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests, and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in the booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof And in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word, and Lord, especially for the truths that are contained in this. God, I can talk about them all day long, but unless your Holy Spirit comes and gives us understanding, Lord, it, it just will not make sense, and so I'm asking you to do that. Lord, let us see truth. Jesus, let us see you and understand even more what you have done and what it means for us. God, I pray that we would be more in love with you when we walk out of here than we are even right now. It's for your glory we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Not only is the story of Nehemiah a foreshadow of the gospel, but it also represents something that God has done from time to time throughout the history of his people. Something that I believe that he is in the midst of doing even right now, today, that you and I are a part of. If you look back on the history of the church, there have been things that God has done that um, we usually refer to as awakenings or revivals similar to what happened here with Nehemiah. The biggest one, of course, was the Reformation. The Catholic Church at that time had gotten away from much of the truth of the gospel and they did what we all have a tendency to do. The pure gospel does not make sense to our human nature. It just doesn't make sense to the way that we we live, the way that we operate and, and relate to one another. The free grace of God given through Jesus just sounds too good to be true. And so a lot of times, in order for it to make more sense to us, in order to get it to line up with what we are used to and the way that we live and operate, we will often add things to it that God never intended. Our human nature thinks, surely it can't be that free and that simple. Well, there's got to be more to it, so let's add something to it so that it will make more sense. By the time of the Reformation, that attitude had led to what was called indulgences in the Catholic Church, which was essentially paying money to receive forgiveness for particular sins. They also taught that one could gain salvation by... uh, Going through the right rituals and reciting the right prayers. But God loved his bride too much to let her continue in that error. So the Holy Spirit began to speak and people began to hear the sound. The main one, of course, was Martin Luther who stood against all this legalistic error and he played a huge role in the rediscovery and the recovery of much of the truth of the gospel, Uh, primarily that uh, salvation is by faith alone rather than works. That's essentially what was going on here with Nehemiah, but instead of a return to the gospel, it was a return to the law at that time. Now, I've told you before that I believe that we are in the midst of another one of those great moves of God throughout history right now. The church, over the last two or three hundred years or so, has gone through another period of time of trying to make the gospel fit us. Trying to make it line up with, with our ways and the way that we relate to one another. And we have gotten so far away from it, uh, a lot of it is just barely recognizable from the original. We've mixed it with so much legalism and made it so much about us and blended it with the American dream to the extent that a lot of people can't tell the difference between the two. But again, God loves his bride too much to let us continue in that, and he's speaking once again to correct it. And many of us are hearing the sound. He's returning us back to a, a recovery, if you will, of the simplicity and purity of the gospel, showing us once again that Jesus is primary not an accessory to everything that we do. Even in the way that we read the Bible, he's restoring many of the truths that we've gotten away from. You know, some people have called the way that I preach and and teach the Word a new way of reading the Bible. But the truth is, it's not new at all. It may be new to some people, just like the law was new to this generation uh, in Nehemiah's time, but it's not new to God. I mean, this is the way that that, that Jesus taught scriptures. In Luke 24, 7, it says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It's the way Jesus taught the scriptures. It's the way the the disciples read and taught the scriptures. You know, I heard one say one time that if if it's true, it's not new. And I believe that because if it's true, then it's from God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Feast of Booths is one of the old covenant ordinances that I don't believe I've ever heard any kind of sermon or, or teaching on. But if it's pointing to Jesus, it's something that we should talk about. And I believe that it is, so that's what I'm going to try to point out this morning. It was also called the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in, Hebrews, in, in the Hebrew language. And for the Jews that still observe it today, it just ended a few weeks ago on October the 3rd. The original instructions for it are found in the book, the, the book of Leviticus at the end of chapter 3, given while the Israelites were still wandering in the wilderness. And it said that when they got to the promised land, they were to do this once a year at the end of the harvest season. Once the harvest was all brought in, the people were to make these small temporary shelters that we just read about in Nehemiah and live in them for seven days. There's a couple reasons God wanted them to do this. First of all, these temporary shelters or booths represented the shelters and tents that their ancestors lived in when they were wandering around for 40 years going from Egypt to the promised land. And then once they were established in Israel and they were living these prosperous lives, living no longer in, in temporary structures but comfortable permanent houses... Um, God wanted them to do that, to, to, to remind them of what he had brought them from and to keep them from getting too comfortable. Because all of us tend to do this. When life is going good, we have a, a big tendency to just kind of push God off to the side. You know, we'll say, okay, man, things are going so good. God, thank you for getting me here. I'll take it from now. I'll take it from here, God. I got this. And then we'll just kind of push him off to the side. And it takes another tragedy or big event for us to, to get centered on him uh, again. And so the Feast of Booze was done in a way to kind of keep that from happening. To remind the people that they always needed to rely on God even when times were good. They would get out of their comfortable houses for a week. And and do this in order to remind them what, what God brought them from. And to keep them from just not relying on him anymore. Um, that would be a good thing for us to keep in mind too. But the feast I believe says a lot more to us than just that. Now I can imagine the children were probably the ones that looked forward to this feast more than anybody. I mean how many of you when you were a kid. Or maybe you've got kids now that love to build forts out in the woods or, or tents in the house. You know. I think there's a big shortage of kid-built forts in the woods these days because of video games and and Fortnite. Fortnite has replaced good old forts, you know, to to build in the house. Um, For the last 17 years, if you were to come over to my house on any given day chances are that you would find at least one room that had quilts, blankets, and sheets covering a bunch of furniture and boxes, anything that would serve as support. All four of my kids have loved to build tents in the house. My youngest, Hope, has taken it to a whole new level. I mean, she has got the most elaborate tents built I've ever seen. If she has a friend over, chances are the whole um, linen closet is going to be emptied. But she'll even build them by herself. And, I mean, they've got different rooms and corridors and levels. I think she's going to be an engineer when she grows up. But So the the Jewish kids at this time, I'm sure they look forward to this because this was a chance for them to to take part in building these little forts and having kind of a, a family camp out in the backyard. So let's think about this. This was done primarily to remind the people of what God had brought them from. And in order to do that, they had to revert back to something that they did before they entered the promised land. I didn't get to put anything in your notes and your bulletins this week. You'll see there's just a blank page there because we were having a problem with the printer. But if you'd like to write things down, this would have been the first point. They reverted back to how they lived before the promised land reverted back to how they lived before the promised land so let, let's put ourselves in the story here now i can imagine that it would have been kind of fun for the first day or two at least because like i said it would have been like going on a, a family camp out but how many of you know that that family campouts have a limit to the fun <laughs> right i mean you can only enjoy it for so long Everyone's going to have a different threshold, but whether yours is two days or ten, there comes a point where you're just ready to leave. You want to get back to your own home, in your own bed, with your own toilet. And you can't wait to get there, because you've been out, out of it for, for so long. So after a couple days, the Feast of Booze would not have been fun anymore. And if the weather was bad, it would have been downright miserable. So day four, day five. Day six, they're still out there, and it would have got progressively worse and more uncomfortable. But no matter how uncomfortable they got during those seven days, there was one thing that the people always knew was true. One thing was that this was only temporary. They didn't have to live like this anymore for a long period of time and they think thank god that we don't have to live like this all the time thank god that we have been released from bondage and and now have possession of our own land thank god that that he fulfilled those promises for us thank god that we'll never go back to living as slaves in egypt again and that right there was a the whole purpose of the feast next point would be thankfulness and worship would be the result The Israelite bondage in Egypt represents the bondage to sin that you and I were in apart from Christ. And then being released from that bondage and led into the promised land represents being released from the power and the curse of sin and led into new life in Christ. And we know that once you have been truly regenerated by the saving power of Jesus, nothing can ever change that. You will never again be who you were before Jesus saved you. Never. That is a guarantee and promises that we have from God in his word. Now, even though the power of sin has been broken, there is still the memory of it and, and, and the nature of our own flesh that, that continues to, to draw us back to it. And so there are times during our walk with the Lord where we will revert back to some of the things that we did before we were saved, revert back to to, to some of the things that we were set free from just like the people lived in the tents the way they did before they entered the promised land, and Satan loves it when we do that because it gives him an opportunity to try to keep us there as long as he can. And he does that by lying and telling you how sorry you are, how disgusted that God is with you, that you don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve to come back to him and, and experience his love and his mercy and his grace all over again. You just need to stay there. That, that's where you deserve to be. Many people are just stuck in a rut. Probably some of you in here today You've reverted back to something that you were saved from. And now guilt and shame and condemnation has just latched itself onto you, driving you further into that sin. And so the more you do it, the more shameful you feel about it. And so as a response to that shame, you just continue down into it further. It's this vicious cycle, the the cul-de-sac of stupidity, which says more of what doesn't work just might work. Look, every one of us, Me, Danny, the elders, it doesn't matter who it is. We are going to revert back to something at some point that we were saved from. The biggest thing is not whether we do that or not. The biggest thing is how we respond to it when we do. God's more concerned about that than he is on whether we did it in the first place. What God wants is when we do revert back to those things is to be reminded of what it is that we've been saved from and what we have now. Because look at this, the feast of booze, like I said, was celebrated once they got to the promised land. I mean, they were there, and so during those seven days, they're, they're living in these tents, living how they did before they got there, but now they are in the promised land. They have possession of it, and so the next point is that being in the tent, they never lost possession of the land. That never changed for them. The only difference between living in the tent now versus them living in it originally was that now they had their possession. Now they had the fulfilled promised Nothing changed as far as their status as the chosen, saved, established, and redeemed people of God. The same is true for us whenever we falter and revert back to things that we did before. You know, many people struggle with this belief that every time they sin, they've just completely lost everything that they had in Jesus. And in order to get it back, they've got to do something. Either pay some type of penance or offer some sacrifice or or go so many days without sinning, just being completely sin-free so God will see how serious you are and that you really mean it or something. But no, all you've got to do is what the Israelites had to do. Just step out of the tent. Because you didn't lose anything in Christ. He paid too high of a price for you to lose it that easy. Too high of a price for you to lose it that easy. Now I know some of you are going to hear that. and You're going to say, well, Jason sure makes it sound like sin isn't a very big deal. No, sin is a big deal. It's a big deal because it distorts the reflection of Jesus in your life. It cheapens His grace if it's used as an excuse. It's giving in to the enemy and putting your desires above God's. Sin is a serious thing. It can't be played with. You can't try to manage it, try to control it. You've got to violently kill it. It is a big deal. But what I want you to understand is that what Jesus accomplished... Is a much bigger deal. A much bigger deal. And therein lies one of the problems. With much of the church at large today. And why the gospel that's been peddled. Doesn't look very much like the one. That we find in the Bible. It's because in our attempts. To try so hard to keep people from doing it. Thinking that that's the goal. Just to keep everybody from sinning. In our attempts to keep people from doing it, we've made such a big deal out of it when we do sin that we've lost sight of the gospel being an even bigger deal. And whatever we make of the most, that's what we're going to be more prone to be drawn to. It's like driving a car. What happens with when, if you're driving a car and you look out the side window too long? Eventually, you're going to start veering in that direction. Even though you don't mean to do that, wherever your eyes are, that's where the car is going to go. The same is true here. If we spend more time talking about sin than we do Jesus, guess what's going to eventually happen? We're going to start moving in that direction. Is that scriptural? You better believe it is. Paul said in Romans 7, 8, the command, don't covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. He was essentially saying, the more I focused on don't do it, guess what? The more I did it. That's what the law does. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever address sin. I'm not saying that at all. But the question is, what are we making more of? What are we making more of? Because whatever we're making of the most, that is what we are going to be drawn to. I believe that the more that we make of Jesus and fix our eyes upon him, the less likely we'll be to revert back to those things that we've been saved from. I'm telling you, as long as we live in this body of flesh, we are going to, at times, revert back to those things. Just like those tents for the Israelites during the feast... If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we might enjoy it for a moment, but we're not going to be able to stay there very long because it's going to be miserable. The longer we stay, the more uncomfortable it's going to be. When that happens, we'll be reminded and we'll realize, this isn't me. This is not me. This is what I've been saved from. Why would I want to go back to that again? Why did I give in to something that no longer has power over me? And instead of allowing guilt and shame to keep us there, just hiding in that tent, thinking that we've lost everything, we've got to do so much to get it back again. We use this to remind ourselves that everything that Jesus purchased for me with his blood is still mine still there. The forgiveness, the grace, the love, the sonship, it's been bought from me never to be taken away. And just like the Feast of Booze, thankfulness and worship will happen as a result. And all it takes to get there is to just step out of that tent. Step out of that booth and you're there. That's Repentance. Next point. Repentance is required when we try to live from who we were instead of from who we are. When we try to live from who we were instead of who we are, that's when repentance is required. And repentance is not just a change in behavior, more importantly, it's a change in our thinking, a change in belief. If you've spent a lot of time in church, you've no doubt probably heard the most common definition of repentance. And that being a 180 degree turn away from sin. Well, that's partly right. Because the most important thing about repentance is not what you turn from, it's what you turn to. Because I can tell you right now, it is very possible to turn from one sin and right to another one. And if you're only focused on your change in behavior and think that if you've done that, then you've fully repented. And there's no change in your thinking or your belief. There's no heart change. The root issue hadn't been dealt with. And so that sin is going to pop up in a different place. The best definition of true repentance is real simple. It's just turning to Jesus. Because in turning to him... You just automatically turn from everything that doesn't have to do with him. And God has made repentance for us a whole lot easier than we usually think it is, and a whole lot more inviting. Because when you turn to Jesus, you're not turning to judgment and condemnation and punishment, you're turning directly into forgiveness and grace and love and mercy and all that Jesus purchased for us. The Feast of Booths shows us that we might revert back to what we used to do from time to time, but because of what Jesus has done and the Holy Spirit living in us, we're not going to stay there very long. Because of what he has done, We're not going to lose our inheritance in Him because what Jesus accomplished is a big deal. And the more that we keep our eyes on that, the less likely we'll be to revert back to who we were. And worship and thankfulness will mark all the days of our life. Let's pray. Lord, I just confessed. Lord, something you have given so pure and so perfect. God, we have such a tendency of just messing it up by adding extra stuff to it. God, the truth is it is so good that it's beyond our ability to grasp it with the limited human mind that you have given us. The word even says we need to be granted the power to be able to do that. And so I'm asking right now that something supernatural would happen in here this morning. And that would be that there are some that just come to an understanding of your grace in a way that they never have before. And God, it would completely break them. Or those that have been so focused on their sin and the guilt and the shame that has attached itself to them because of that. Lord, I pray like a good, loving father, you would reach down and just touch them on the chin and raise their face up to gaze at you. Lord, you'd give them the courage to just step out into everything that your blood has bought for them. Lord, I pray for those that are in so much bondage as a sin that they've stayed in for a long time, God, that they just don't see any way out of it. Lord, let them know that you laid this message on my heart this morning to let them know that you have the power to set them free from anything. Lord, I pray for those that have fallen in love with their sin more than they love you. God, that you would give them a disgust. A disgust of everything in their life that doesn't match you. Lord, I'm praying for repentance to happen in this place this morning. And Lord, that only happens by a move of your spirit in and among us. Lord, let us continually walk in your grace and keep our eyes on you so that we won't keep reverting back to who we were or remind us every day of who you have made us so that our lives may better glorify you. Jesus, I thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for the good news that you have given us. Would you come and have your way now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.